As the saying goes, we are only human, defined by the unique set of traits that separate us from all other life on earth. Our hopes, our fears, our proclivities, our ingenuity, and our capacity for mistakes. The FAA reports that human error is responsible for 80% of aviation accidents. Knowing this, how can we preserve the humanity that moves aviation forward while avoiding our sometimes fatal oversights? How can we be more adept at flying our aircraft while also making the aircraft more attuned to us? To learn more about this, I spoke with Natalie Jashan. Natalie is a human factors and ergonomics specialist at Airbus. In her role, Natalie researches human behavior in aviation and develops intuitive ways for people to work with the machines they operate. In this conversation with Natalie, we'll examine the science of human factors. We'll talk about the impact small details make on our comprehension. Why do we pay more attention to safety labels when written in lowercase? And why are audible alerts more effective in a female voice? We'll break down the intricacy of language, how errors in wording have led to disaster in flight, and how we can communicate better as a multilingual industry. Then we'll look to the future, how people like Natalie are changing the way we interact with our aircraft, and much more. I'm Bruce Webb, and this is Push to Talk, Episode 14, Only Human, with Natalie Chashon. I'd like to welcome Natalie Jashan to the show. Natalie, you have a very unique professional focus. You are a human factors and ergonomics specialist for Airbus. I'm fascinated by your title. Would you please tell us more about yourself and what you do? Mm-hmm. Sure. Thank you for doing this interview. So uh, I'll just talk to you about my uh, educational background. At first, I started doing um, a double bachelor in uh, psychology and English literature and linguistics. And after that, I did a master's uh, in linguistics in Chicago, in the University of Chicago. And then I did a natural language processing master's at, this, at the same time while it was in Paris. And after that, at the end of, uh, in France, at the end of your, your master's degree, you always have to do a, an internship. So it was really by chance that I found the, the internship in Airbus Toulouse, in, the, in Airbus Commercial Air, Air, Airplanes. And uh, it was it, the subject was really interesting. It was to, to make uh, audio alerts in the cockpit more intuitive for the pilots and see if the urgency is well uh, coherent with what we are trying to, to make the pilot understand. So uh, I started the internship there. I moved to Toulouse from Paris, and uh, it was really, really interesting. I did a lot of research. I had participants coming in, um, pilots and other Airbus employees, and we tested the different sounds and different alerts with a female voice, with a male voice, with different, different intonations and urgency and pitch. And uh, we found out that female uh, voice was actually better for conveying urgency. Most of the audio alerts in the cockpit right now, they are a male voice. Huh. This can maybe change the design for future aircraft. So this experience was really, really interesting to me. I didn't know anything about airplanes. I didn't know anything about aviation. It was very, very interesting. So after that internship, I was interested in doing a PhD and doing more research on the same kind of subject. After that, I was hired in the department to do a PhD, which is in France like an industrial PhD. 
you work at the university, but also in Airbus to resolve some kind of industrial uh, issue. And that was in Toulouse? That was in Toulouse, in the human factors and ergonomics department in the design office. Uh, I started doing my PhD uh, in 2015 uh, on uh, the design of a future cockpit. So it was a disruptive cockpit. Um, we had to start from scratch because the design was very different. Many more things were automatized. Because in Airbus, in general, what we do is uh, we have a lot of standardization in the fleet so that one pilot that flies one one aircraft can fly another one. So the design doesn't change so much. But for future aircraft in like 30, 40 years, we wanted to have a, a completely disruptive design because th things are going to be more uh, automatic. And so my PhD was in that scope. So potentially having a single pilot, single pilot operations. And when we say that it means that we have to design things to be even more intuitive for the pilot. So we worked on the ECAM monitor, for example, where you have some sort of some uh, alerts for a normal and abnormal situations. So it will guide the pilot to know what they have to do. And the way it was written with the controlled language designed a long time ago, we had technical constraints, the screen were smaller, didn't have a lot of space uh, to write what we needed to write. So sometimes we had a lot of abbrevi abbreviations, we had color coding, uh, we had um, certain typographical differences that made it a bit difficult to understand for the, for the inexperienced eye. So pilots had to be trained to understand it. And sometimes there were differences between different aircrafts. So we had to design a new way of communicating with the pilot in a more natural way. Is ECAM an acronym? Yes, it's Electronic Centralized Monitor. So that is what is embedded now in new aircraft like an A380, or it will be for aircraft further down the road? Further down the road, yeah. It hasn't been designed yet. But the ECAM monitor exists already since the A320. Right. So before before that, we didn't have a, a, a centralized monitor. And since since the glass cockpit with the 320, we started having the ECAM monitor that helps pilots, that guides pilots into what they need to do in case of uh, whether it be, it be checklists in the beginning of flights or abnormal situations and emergency situations. So the checklist, I remember this was probably... I'll say 15 years ago, I went through training on the NH-90. I went to training in France. I didn't complete the training because it became unnecessary for a lot of different reasons, but I began the training. And I remember on the NH-90, we had two DKUs, digital keyboard units, DKUs, and everything ran for, through the DKU. So if you had a, let's say you had an oil pressure problem, the checklist actually came up in the DKU. And then you, as you resolve the issue, if it said, you know, turn off this, turn on that, whatever, it, it would, each line item would extinguish if you did it correctly. Mm -hmm. Is, is that, is ECAM in that? It's similar. Yeah. Some, some things are what we call sensed by the aircraft. So if uh, the aircraft can tell that you did it, then it will automatically vanish. And certain things are like tick boxes because the aircraft cannot sense it. So you have to tick it. Like, uh, for example, uh, don ox uh, oxygen masks. Yes. You have to tick it uh, after you do it. Sure. Because it cannot tell if you actually put it. It was just released. Sure. So do you think that, you know, and again, we're projecting into the future and no one knows the future, but would it be reasonable to imagine on the commercial aircraft, you know, we already do it in the small helicopters, of course. We fly single mm -hmm. pilot. Do you think there may be a day in the future, in a few decades, where we're actually flying commercial aircraft, single pilot? 
Yeah, it could be. It could be done. I think that there's also a lot of uh, sociological issues to take into consideration. Are we ready to fly with a single pilot? Most passengers, they don't really know what goes on in the cockpit and they can't really imagine that most things are on autopilot. There's not a lot of things that are, I mean, you, st you, still, you still do a lot, but it's not like driving a car where you have to be uh, 100% on it all the time. Right. Uh, but the engineers often need uh, also someone who is going to think about uh, what the human needs, what the operator needs, because... Uh, and remind them that we're not really machines. Uh, we need the design to be clear. There's a lot of variability. There are a lot of outside uh, elements that come into play, like the environment, the stress, the fatigue, that we need to take into consideration that training is not enough. Training is very important, but it's not enough. The design itself needs to be intuitive enough, needs to help the pilots know what they need to do without even asking. And if you have a single pilot operations, then you you even need to make things even more clear. So we had people uh, looking into physical ergonomics, like is uh, is everything clear? Is our uh, field of vision, is it enough? Can we see all the screens? Can we reach everything we need to reach? There were people who are working on cognitive psychology, like stress and fatigue. How does that help? Or uh, if you're too isolated, if you're doing a nine-hour flight and you're on your own, is right. that okay? Some people were working on on certain things like um, speech-to-text functions or instead of having a co-pilot to assist you in certain checklists then maybe some sort of Siri-like thing that can assist you in uh, right. giving you answers or doing checklists with you. So there are all of these professions. There's linguists also in the department. We can have uh, neuroscientists also for the perception because also we can work on things like uh, keeping the pilot aware of what's happening, situational awareness, or it can be also about how our brain perceives things. Is it clear enough? Is it right. Yes, because if the pilot becomes task-saturated, exactly. once they're task-saturated, mm -hmm. additional information is oftentimes not absorbed and not mm -hmm. acted upon. Mm -hmm. Studies have showed that uh, you can you cannot really multitask and give your attention to every single task in an equal way. So sometimes you will give more attention to one task than the other. So something that can help you in this case, for example, in case of multitasking, having a checklist helps a lot because you, even if you know and you've been trained, right. the, the checklist will remind you, right. will remind you that you need to do certain right. things in a certain way or not to forget. Right. I think my personal belief is the value of a checklist is much more than the words on the page. Mm -hmm. The value of a checklist is it slows you down mm -hmm. because the act of actually pulling out a checklist or looking at a checklist on a DKU or the act of following the checklist slows us down. Mm -hmm. And if we go slower, we're often less likely to make a mm -hmm. an error. And, and certainly if you're flying single pilot on a commercial airplane, a fixed wing aircraft, or flying as you as you you're well aware, more aware than I, that as helicopter pilots, we often are flying single pilot. And so there's no opportunity for a challenge and response checklist. You're by yourself. Uh, there's um, the cognitive embodiment theory, which is a new theory that talks about, I mean, relatively new, that says that when you verbalize certain things, like when you're saying the checklist out loud, it makes you also uh, do the action in a more efficient manner. 
because you verbalize it so you think about it and you do it more efficiently and sometimes when you read it it's not enough and the way it's written also can change things and that's why we have linguists also that that right. work on that so the value of it as you said is also a reminder and 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 it it slows you down but it also makes you aware of the cognitive parts in your brain make you aware of the actions that you do and so it helps you yeah that's fascinating again mm-hmm. we have learned so much about the human mind mm-hmm. so so what you're telling me is when i talk to myself when i'm working it's okay yes of course <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly that <laughs> so you worked in the commercial uh-huh. arena so uh, the fixed wing aircraft at airbus uh-huh. and then what precipitated your change or your movement over to the helicopter side? Mm-hmm. So after I after I finished my PhD, I worked on a, on different projects, also in the human factors department, and uh, I, I started to know the cockpit quite well. Um, and so after that, I saw that I saw this this position open up in the Airbus helicopters in Marignan. So I thought um, it sounded so interesting and it was in the technical documentation department. So very different from the cockpit. They deal a lot with maintenance. They deal with uh, uh, the flight operations manual, which is a little bit different. So I thought that's a challenge and it would be very interesting to, to work there. Um, and then when I when I started this job, it was a bit difficult at first because I, I it was all new to me. Uh, we in Airbus, we like a lot our acronyms, and they were, and after <laughs> after uh, I don't know eight years in the cockpit, I had learned all the acronyms, and I arrived here, and it was completely a new set right. of acronyms. Right. Yeah, it is fascinating how we. Yeah. In fact, we have a glossary filled with acronyms. Exactly. It's called Lexinet, I think. Yes. At at first, it was challenging, but it was really interesting because there was a lot to do. Uh, so Sabine Donard, uh, who uh, is a safety manager and mm-hmm. she works on the safety management system, the SMS, she initiated this uh, this uh, go towards human factors because usually in technical documentation there was no there was there's there wasn't this specialty even though sometimes it's very surprising because technical documentation is used by humans right. and it's super a, important. It's super important, yeah. And so she uh, she decided that we needed uh, in the with the deployment of the SMS we needed the human factor skills. So uh, we started working together, and after after looking into all the all the needs of the department, so it's it's a, quite a big department. There are different uh, métiers dedans, inside. Sorry, <laughs> so it's French. And so uh, after looking into all the needs, we started trying to prioritize what's what's most important what brings the most added value for the technicians that are going to use our documentation and one of the projects that we're working on now is uh, bringing the tech data specialists or the authors closer to the machine because uh, so far the the problem is that you feel like there's a lot of detachment from the actual terrain so uh, the people who put these rules for the authors are not necessarily aware of the of the needs of the technician, or even if they are aware, it's not the same as actually seeing it with your own right. eyes. Because we, as human factor specialists, our first job is to really look into users' needs, the user experience, 
if you, you know if you have 10 pilots you're going you're going to have 20 opinions so <laughs> at least. what we do is use our methodology uh, we use uh, statistics we use different tools in order to from this variability of opinions and needs and every pilot and or every user in this case tech, maintenance technicians have their own experiences and their own background and so it their opinion is also influenced so what we do is try to remain on the outside and that's why it's also interesting that we don't necessarily have one specialty so we can work in the cockpit we can work in the in the final assembly line we can work for maintenance what's important is to understand uh, the, the 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 work and then and then from this sample of people that we we see try to do studies to be able to have uh, some sort of common core and this common core would be the best kind of design for or the or the closest to the best kind of design that will reduce the probability of making errors so you're focusing on trying to bring the people who are writing the instructions for continued airworthiness exactly. the ICAs mm-hmm. the the work cards the people who are writing the work cards you're trying to bring them closer to the actual users of the work card so they can understand the difficulties or the challenges of the user. You can assist the, the, the people who write the instructions to do it in a way that is more effective and usable by the end user. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the, the listeners will appreciate that because if you've ever been around a helicopter very long that's under maintenance, mm-hmm. someone is gonna say, whoever wrote this has clearly never touched a helicopter, <laughs> right? That's a common, mm-hmm. and in some cases, that's certainly true. So you're spending a great deal of effort to challenge and improve that potential disconnect so that the instructions are more usable. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Just a rough number. What percent of work cards or, or effort by the technicians do you believe has been revised or needs to be revised or is there any way to understand or know what may be misunderstood or mm-hmm. where, what are what are the challenges there well, right now we're at the point of deciding uh cri- the, the criteria we need to be able to like a decision tree and a matrix to decide what what tasks are critical uh if we need to look only at critical tasks if we're we don't, we have to look at uh every task if we have to decide because also the challenge is that um contrary to aircraft uh, we need helicopters are very variable they have different configurations so sometimes when you have a new change uh, you need that configuration so in order to test it on the aircraft so to do on aircraft validations of the work card you need that aircraft right, right. so right now also we have to decide whether certain things can be validated with virtual reality so we immerse the the authors in uh in the the 3D DMU and what's DMU for it's, the audience it's the it's it's the Katia um, 3D the Katia 3D modeling system exactly so it's what 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 the engineers use to design the aircraft so we can take parts of that and uh, show authors what the accessibility is like uh, how can we how can we because the problem is that everything is um, say de- deconstructed in a way so certain authors work on one system only the problem is that in maintenance sometimes you, to access one system you have to touch other systems sure. so the challenge of the authors is that they have to do a lot of these things by imagining what the aircraft is like and it's a very very difficult task for a human so on on the one hand we look into the final job which is 
done by the technician. So making the technical documentation user-friendly for everyone and, and mostly usable and efficient. But on the other hand, we also have the authors that uh, we have to think about their work and their work is, is really difficult because a lot of the times they have to do the job by uh, looking into different uh, design office documentation and different documentary sources and try to assemble all this information to be able to write a work card. And the problem is that with, they have to imagine it because they don't necessarily have the aircraft. And also they have to think about the end user and write it in a clear way. So I, it's a really difficult task. Right. And we have to take into consideration this difficulty also. Right. And the link, the linguistics. Exactly. Societal differences between, you know, different, mm-hmm. yeah, different ages of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Understanding. Even the apomorphic, I mean, the size of the person, the, you know, the physical, a seven foot tall person is going to have a, a greater advantage in some places and a, and a, and a detriment in others. Mm-hmm. Just as a smaller person has benefits and detriments, and and the skills also of the of the authors, because a lot of our authors are retired maintenance technicians, or they used to be in the army. They used to be army maintenance technicians, and they do a fantastic job because they already know the, the maintenance of the aircraft, but they might not know all the rotor crafts. They may have flown on a different one, or they may have uh, done maintenance on a different one. So. They are not linguists, you right. know, so that that's a thing also that we have to determine what skills need to be used when. And it's easy to take things for granted. Mm-hmm. Opening a door or, or removing a cowling. Mm-hmm. Someone may look at a cowling and say, well, geez, yeah, that's simple. You just remove it. Mm-hmm. But someone who's never seen that installation before may find it difficult. Mm-hmm. Or it may have a particle separator or a barrier filter. Or, again, as you said, all these aircraft even within the same model, are often configured differently. Mm-hmm. So it's quite difficult. And sometimes it's difficult to understand. Also, uh, we see it that when, when we go and observe the maintenance, we see all the things that can be variable, that can go wrong or go differently or not what we expect. And so when we go back to, sometimes we go back to the authors, they're sometimes reluctant to take what, 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 what to, to take into account our recommendations because they say like, no, well, any technician knows how to do this. But then the reality is that even sometimes uh, very experienced people, they are they don't have everything that they need or it's not clear or we didn't write it in the same, in the in the right order. So it's important also to to take into consideration the expertise, but also to know that sometimes it's limited and it's variable. So someone who works uh, in Europe is not necessarily ha- does not necessarily have the same skill anywhere else in the world. And we don't have the same certification. Right. So there's a lot of variability and there's a, a, you can speak a different language, you have a different culture, uh, you have different trainings. Um, the time between the, between the first time that you, uh, the design trigger and the final product, they can be years. So anything can happen between the, in sure. these times. And the environment. It's one thing to disassemble a gearbox or to remove something in a nice hangar with a four-ton crane and blah, 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 Mm -hmm. as opposed to doing it in a field or on an oil rig in the middle of the North Sea where you don't have that. Or, you know, illumination, you don't have lights, you Mm -hmm. don't have, I mean, yeah, there's so many. I, I know that anyone who's worked on a helicopter has great appreciation for the difficulty of doing it under the best of conditions. And no one gets to work under the best of conditions. Everyone has some 
some situation they have to overcome. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it can be lack of tooling or uh, yeah, the list is endless. So there's the, the FA, is there an FAA report that said that uh, 40% of the maintenance technician's time is spent on navigating through the work cards or understanding them. And that's, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot, a lot of, time. of time. Yeah. Right. We want people to read the work cards. Mm-hmm. We want people to step back and make sure they understand the process well. Do you have an idea what is a, a reasonable percent of time? Clearly, you have to read the you have to read the instructions. I think it needs to be um, a more efficient. Um, I mean, I, I can't give a percentage, but I think that what the statistic is, was saying is that they take this much time to understand what they need to do and to navigate. And sometimes there are with the new documentation, there's links that take you to different types of uh, of documentation. There are different manuals also. So there's the AMM, which is the aircraft maintenance manual, but then there's also the the MTC, I mean, sometimes it's called differently in different uh, air, with different aircraft. Uh, you have the ELS, you have uh, the MSM, so, okay, and more right. acronyms, but there are different manuals, and sometimes you have to navigate and understand which ones you need. You need to, to know what setup you need. You need to know what close-up you need. So it's more about the navigation time rather than, the, than, than reading it and knowing what to do. And I guess it's it's more about making it more efficient, productive, and uh, we read it and we understand directly. We don't need to look it up, read again, and go back and forth. Cross-reference it, right. Mm-hmm. For, right. And the problem is that um, what, what, what the, most of the, in the literature, people who have studied it have concluded that one of the first reasons of uh, aircraft uh, maintenance accidents was failure to follow proced- procedures. And... Uh, the problem is that we we need to make the procedures more clear so that people want to follow them also. That's the thing is that if we say, okay, but this is written, but if it's written in a way that we are not ready to read or it's too complex to navigate, then we are not helping people want to read the procedures because a lot of the time they're like, oh, but I know how to do this. I don't need to read the safety warnings. But we want them to be able to read the safety warnings. So how can we make the safety warning more appealing? Maybe we can put videos uh, of the procedure because certain procedures are too complex. And uh, by by writing it, writing something, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, sure. and sometimes a video is also worth a thousand, a thousand words. Uh, so we are also working. There's going to be a PhD in our department looking into that. Okay, how can we use maybe augmented reality or uh, virtual reality or even videos, uh, multimedia, to be able to uh, make the um, make the documentation more accessible and more intuitive, right. rather than doing something just to that makes it more complex. Sure. How do you perceive fatigue? So, technic technicians being fatigued. Do we have any idea how that affects performance, or are we are we measuring that, or what what efforts are being done to ensure that? You know, a technician is capable of doing the mm-hmm. procedure, even when not at 100%, perhaps, because none of us are at 100%, mm-hmm. 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. I think that um, in part 145, they they work a lot on that. They're, so human factors is a, um, not, not even a relatively new, it started in 1988 in Airbus, uh, in training, in the final assembly line, the cockpit engineering, 
it's new in tech data, but there's also in maintainability. So th there are also human factor specialists there that look into how the the operator is uh, influenced by by certain things like accessibility, fatigue, uh, workload while doing maintenance. So more like the physical ergonomics, and they look into that. And also in uh, in every hangar, you can have people also also thinking about that. Uh, the problem where we can find issues here is that sometimes um, people don't don't necessarily take into account the, uh, the workload or the fatigue of the maintenance technician. And so we end up with something sure. not necessarily coherent. Good. Right, mm -hmm. right. What are you doing now? What's your latest focus? And I'm not speaking about aircraft per se, but it is difficult. I know that from a, you know, I've had challenges working with people where what I thought I was being crystal clear, but I wasn't being crystal clear. And it often is, you know, fortunately for me, most people speak English. Um, however, we all don't speak the same English mm -hmm. sometimes. And it's so simple just to make a tiny error. You know, unfortunately, too, it can propagate and continue mm -hmm. and ultimately end in a if not an accident, certainly damage to the aircraft. Um, what did you learn, if anything, when you worked in commercial for the fixed wing and the cockpits and the, that you believe has helped you transition into helping the technicians have a better experience with our product? What did you learn that's helped you today in the rotorcraft world? Well, uh, my PhD had um, it was in cognitive sciences and and linguistics also. So I think uh, it it was for building in um, a new controlled language for the disruptive cockpit, and uh, so I think this helped me a lot in understanding this kind of these kind of uh, issues in the documentation also about comprehension, perception, understanding cer certain things because sometimes you write. Um, for a native speaker, for example, it would seem uh, weird to write things in a certain way. But what we need to do is write things uh, with the technical English uh, so that even if it sounds a little bit... Um, Stilted or unusual. Exactly, right. unusual. Uh, it would be clear to write it this way rather than writing it in a more convoluted way, but that sounds more natural for a native speaker. So I think all of this also helps me understand the needs of the operators uh, how they perceive information, how to write things in a certain way. Um, for example, we know that you read things better with a lowercase uh, font rather than an uppercase font. And so sometimes certain warnings and cautions are, are written in an uppercase font, and even if they are three or four sentences long. Uh, so this is not necessarily optimized hmm. for the for the. That's for interesting. The user. We would suspect that it was the opposite, right? Of course. That's why where they they were written in uppercase. Mm -hmm. We thought bold, right? Mm -hmm. When you text, if you use uppercase, you're shouting. Yeah, that's interesting. I had not. I would have not guessed that lowercase is often understood better than when we. You could use uh, uppercase for um, flashing certain things or important things like a like warning written in red or bold and uppercase. 
or uh, or for example if something is very far like when you're driving a car you need you need to see things bigger so mm-hmm. uppercase would be uh, efficient but when you're reading something on a computer or on a piece of paper it's often better to especially when it's long to have a lowercase it's just one example but we also what we do is um, we do experiments to see how the information is perceived in the brain and how with a different with a bigger sample of people we do statistics and see whether this uh, the hypothesis that we take whether it actually it goes for everyone so in the past i believe well certainly long ago but I believe in even the most recent past, our manuals, whether they be the technical manuals or the flight manuals, were written in, in not in, they were originally written in French or German, and then they were translated to English and then disseminated to the world. Is that still the case, or are we changing that convention? Are we are we still writing in French and German and trans, translating them, or are we now writing in English? No, certain uh, certain manuals, the newer ver- the newer aircraft, we write directly in English. Uh, we still translate certain uh, manuals for older aircraft, uh, the legacy ones. Um, and so there's a department that deals with just that for everything from translation, standardization, um, looking into uh, a controlled language is a language that uh, you uh, reduce you reduce you reduce the syntax you reduce the semantics of it and so you have a dictionary with specific terms one term equals one meaning so you can't use synonyms uh, you have also specific uh, specific language rules like for example not to use the passive tense and if you want to give an order then you have to always start with a verb and they work on that, and when they translate it, they have also um, translators that 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 also take into account the controlled language in the target language. But the newer aircraft are done uh, mostly in English because it was easier to standardize. Uh, where where it's still a bit problematic is when we sell to the army of each of each uh, country, and they often ask for for the language of. Uh, the country because certain sure. right. the technicians would not know how to right. speak English, but it's slowly changing to be to become like uh, civil aviation. the The common language, the lingua franca, is uh, is English. Right. I don't think certainly I didn't realize and what efforts are placed upon having standard standardized words mm-hmm. and not just caution, warning, you know, uh, land immediately, things like that. But yeah, just an everyday word in the book, it must mean the same thing to the you know to all of us, and it, and we we try to reuse that. We're not you know this is a business and technical writing, not uh, uh, writing uh, f- uh, fiction or so. We're not trying to be clever. We're trying to be clear, mm-hmm. and that's completely different writing mm-hmm. when your focus is entirely upon clear. With a background in linguistics, mm-hmm. is that a special interest of yours, the, the, the words mm-hmm. and the meaning of those words? Mm-hmm. It's the science of language that's very interesting. Um, so my my uh, PhD director, she's called Anne Condamine, uh, with her we wrote about um, ergonomic linguistics, uh, which is a, a, a branch of, of linguistics that deals with uh, real-life uh, applications of linguistics because traditionally linguistics is a bit theor- a theoretical approach. 
And here what we do is we try to resolve uh, a real life application. So in this case, uh, we need the language to be clear for anyone who, per who works, who perceives it, who needs it for a safety critical situation. So for example, there were lots of uh, incidents um, where certain certain uh, language ambiguities led to accidents, like uh, the Tenerife accident, one of the most deadly, uh, the, the most the deadly, most deadly um, where, when the pilot says, I'm at takeoff, and uh, this was meant to be understood as, um, as I am taking off. And so the instructor we did not understand at first and then when they said when he said hold for takeoff it was just not understood and because of that the ICAO just uh, did a whole completely different phraseology for uh, for taking into a, for, for a new language for for pilots to use All right and uh, there are lots of examples like this like for uh, there was an incident once where uh, the ATC the air traffic control instructed the pilot to descend to 200 to level two two hundred, uh, and um, he just the, the the controller just said descend two two hundred, and so right. the the pilot understood the two hundred feet, right. and so uh, they descended to a level that they need they need to, to descend it. They, the the controller should have said descend 2, level two hundred two thousand two hundred, and so they almost crashed into right. another aircraft midair. Um, and this is just because of phonetic ambiguity, because of the T, uh, the two meaning T O, T -O not T W O. And, yeah, right? and not T W O. Right? Exactly. I've I've had incidents flying where I said something that I believed was clear. Mm -hmm. I said, for example, traffic two o'clock, mm -hmm. and to me, two o'clock is a very specific location, you know, along an azimuth from the nose of the aircraft. But the person that I was flying with had probably never used an analog watch. So two o'clock did not elicit a position mm -hmm. in his mind. It's very cultural also because uh, Americans use that a lot, but it's not necessarily right. the case anywhere else in right. the world. So And even the word traffic. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I think back to all the, the things that went wrong in those exchanges early on, because we would say, let's go ahead and do a standard traffic pattern. So I'm identifying by saying that kind of the circuit I want flown, a traffic pattern. Mm -hmm. But then when I point out a potential um, uh, conflict by saying traffic, there's ambiguity there. Now I'm identifying an aircraft. Not a pattern, but an aircraft. So I may have uh, mentioned this earlier, where we call the positions on the aircraft, you know, port and starboard, as opposed to right and left, mm -hmm. uh, or fore and aft, you know. Th those all have good meaning, and we must get a standard and try to stay to the standard. There's been a lot of accidents, I am certain, where people said left and right, mm -hmm. and that port and starboard might have been a better choice of words. Mm-hmm. So as you look at the, to the future in helicopters, what type of advancements in, whether it be the cockpit or uh, for technicians, where do you see us being in 20 years? So you're young, you're just starting in this <laughs> industry. So 20 or 30 years from now, when you're in my age, where do you see us? Um, 
hopefully safer <laughs> in a safer world where we have less uh, less less accidents that we can avoid by looking into uh, more human-centered design and taking into consideration the, um, the human at work because some things could be avoidable and uh, we need to take into consideration all the variability and the human performance um, maybe uh, I know that in um, in civil aviation it's much more regulated certain things are enforced by certification and uh, it, it it is starting in heli- for helicopters but uh, so I, I'm hoping that maybe in 20 years things will be a bit more systematic you know because sometimes Uh, the problem is that if it's not in our processes, if we don't take it into consideration from the beginning of the design, oftentimes it's too late. It's lost. Uh, or it costs a lot of money to change certain things. Like sometimes when we realize, when we come, when we get to the point of accident or incident, maybe it's too late then. Uh, we It's never too late because we can change, but it can it can cost a lot of money, it can cost lives, it can tarnish your reputation. So it's always better to to think about these things upstream and during the, the beginning of the design and and test things and have empirical evidence because it's it's not it's, it's a lot of people this is something that is our um, nemesis in human factors when people tell you no but uh, human factors is common sense uh, is is it's really not it's a science uh, there are different scientific disciplines. Uh, we have different methodologies. We have to. Um, it's a, it's always an iterative design. So uh, with the engineers, we work on developing certain functions or certain products, like like technical documentation, for example. And then uh, we have to test it and we have to verify it. And this is the perfect way of actually having evidence that if if our design is appropriate or not. And if it's not, then we redesign it, sure. we change it. And if and when only when we're satisfied, then we let it out. It's interesting that I, I was listening to, it, it may have been you, I'm not certain if it was you or another human factors engineer. And the conversation revolved around the time life of a component or the, the, nece- the necessity for an inspection cycle. So as example, If you have to do an inspection on the gearbox every thousand hours, let's just throw that number out a thousand hours, but through monitoring, through engineering, we can improve the life of that. So it only needs inspected every 2000 hours. That not only saves money for the customer, it also though removes the potential for a human factor error Because, in fact, if you're not disassembling the component or you're not removing it, you know, you can't damage something that you're not working on, Mm -hmm. I guess is my point. And I find that an interesting concept within human factors that, of course, if the engines never had to be pulled off the aircraft, Mm -hmm. then you're not going to have to worry about someone harming themselves or the aircraft pulling engines. Mm -hmm. So... As we look to increase time life on components, Mm -hmm. as we look to keep the maintenance schedule uh, manageable, actually, Mm -hmm. a good portion of that is human factors. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very important because the thing is, in everyday life, we make errors all the time, but they don't have any safety consequences or any big, big deal. Like we forget our keys inside the apartment. Okay, it's not a problem. It can be resolved. And the Where it, where it becomes critical is in safety critical um, safety critical domains, 
like the nuclear the nuclear field or the or aviation where a small uh, human error can cost lives and a lot of money and and it can right. be very very the consequences can be very high so that this is where uh, human design is really important and and obviously this is where human factors um domain is the most advanced because if any 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 mistake can cause a, a lot of harm so for example and 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 what what we need to do is knowing all of this how can we it, it's not enough just to do awarenesses and and explain to people and explain to them why it's not common sense i mean everything is common sense but apart from that um is also to to do certain designs that uh that can can stop these uh right. these these mistakes so for example in france if you have uh, if you have an AT- if you go to an atm uh, before uh, like five years ago uh, what you needed to do is uh, you you put your atm card you get the money out and then you get back your card and what happened is that people always forgot their cards so what they did is that they changed the design so that uh, when you Uh, when, when the first goal the, your primary goal is to is to get money out so what happens is that you go there you get your money out and you, your primary goal primary goal is fulfilled so often you forget your card so what they did is that now when you go to get your money out they give you the card first because this is a secondary goal you you don't want to forget your card obviously they give you the card first but you're still waiting for your primary goal so this really reduced the probability of error sure. and so this is in everyday life or for example you always uh se- when you when you're sending an email and you say i've attached the file here and then you carry on writing the email and what happens a lot of the time is that you forget to attach the attachment that you wanted to 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 put in the in the first place so what the, what for example gmail does is uh have an algorithm that checks your what you wrote and it says it stops you before sending it's like are you sure you don't want to attach this uh huh. the because it it automatically read that there's an attachment and yet the email didn't have one so it reminds you of right. your that never happens to me because i talk to myself the whole time i'm writing uh, it cognitive embodiment <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it it can happen that even b- though we're experts at sending emails sure. right everyone is an expert it can happen that uh you still f- you forget it happens to me all the time And so I have to send another email. But then if something, uh, a machine reminds me, hey, you said attach, but you didn't attach an email, then this will remind me of my uh, limitations, sure. my human limitations, and I will then attach the, attach the email. And so this is a design solution that actually um, takes into consideration your limitations and helps you get back on track. Right. Yeah. I mean, we all, we're all human and we all take, you know, shortcuts mm-hmm. cognitively. And yeah, it's part of the reason that we're here today, right? Mm-hmm. We've succeeded in life because we're we're capable of envisioning and taking shortcuts, but it's also one of the biggest foibles of a human mm-hmm. is that we're looking for a shortcut unconsciously often. But if we take that shortcut, we don't always know the ramifications until it's too late. Um, and, and as you pointed out, we work in a very unforgiving industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, small errors and a small error can lead to a catastrophic event well down the road. In other mm-hmm. words, it doesn't have to occur if you overspeed the rotor on a helicopter and for whatever reason it's not it's not noticed or it's not recorded and it's not the corrective maintenance actions aren't taken, it's unlikely that the rotor is going to 
suffer a failure tomorrow, but it might two years from now or two months from now or two days from now. So, yeah, there's not an instant solution or resolution to the potential problem. It, it can carry forward. And there's no such thing as the gold standard operator either. Some, some people tell me, yeah, but if he didn't know what to do, it must be because he's not well qualified. But it's 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 really not about that. It's there's there in Airbus we have this just culture thing that we don't blame people for mistakes for errors, because errors happen. And what's important is to take into to not blame the operator, but rather um, understand why this happened. What is the root cause? The root cause is not the consequence of what happened. The root cause is what in the design of the situation did not help the operator adapt and use. Their, uh, um, their adaptation qualities to be able to resolve the situation. Because that's the thing. Um, luckily, we are adaptable. Uh, a lot of the t- 80% of the time, we manage to, uh, overcome. to sure. overcome the the, the, uh, the potential errors. What's dangerous is really when the, in, the, in the 20% of the time when the design did not help us cope. And so this is where it's important to not blame the person, but rather think about what we can do to help person use their adaptation skills to be able to cope with the situation. Because un, um, abnormal situations, they happen. Uh, accidents happen. And what we need to do is, uh, you know, with the reason uh, Swiss cheese complex right. is to be able to put more filters along the way, starting with design and ending with uh, the, the protective and corrective measures. Right. Yeah, James Reason's model is a fantastic illustration of barriers, potential barriers, but the flaws in the barriers, the holes. Mm-hmm. I think it's, and this probably isn't my unique thought, but I, I, when I speak about that model, I say what makes it more complex that we often misunderstand is the holes aren't stationary, nor are they fixed in their circumference or their diameter. In other words, fatigue, you know, let's say you have methods in place to, you know, you, you limit pilots duty time to 12 hours. You can't fly so more, more than eight hours in a day, not work more than 12, you know, or whatever the values are. And that does limit the propensity to be fatigued. But still, at the beginning of the day, my personal fatigue, that hole in the Swiss cheese may be very small. Mm-hmm. But as my day progresses, and maybe it's a hot day, and the air conditioner is not working well, or it's a cold day, and I don't have a heater, that fatigue hole gets larger. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily fatigue, but other areas move, they migrate through that particular slice of cheese. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, when we look at accidents, it's never, in my experience, it's never just one thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's typically things that are innocuous. We, we don't believe that one thing is going to, maybe you fail to guard the mode selector when you start the engine. You start the engine, you fail to guard the mode selector. Mm-hmm. You know, in and of itself, that's probably not the end of the world. But if you're flying a single engine aircraft and something happens and it hits that switch and the switch breaks and it goes to off, then that is a problem. That the guard is there to stop something extraordinary from causing an accident. That's mm-hmm. why it's guarded. That's why it has a, you know, it's a it's a it's a guarded switch. So, yeah, it, it's it makes me proud though. I say this, I, I I am proud that I work for a company such as Airbus, and we have people like you who are looking after us. 
it is important. I'm certain, yeah, you know, you're predicting, essentially you're predicting the errors that our humans are likely to make before we make them and trying to put barriers Mm -hmm. or systems in place to stop that from becoming fatal. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's human life that's important. Mm -hmm. No one wants to damage an aircraft, but, you know. And sometimes we forget that humans are key. We, we can't do things without the humans, at least not now, uh, not yet. And uh, we are there in all the stages. We are there when we design things. We are days when we op- we are there when we operate things. We are there when we fix things. So uh, and and we are fantastically uh, adaptable, but also uh, we are limited. And as you said, your your what your body is uh, uh, can take before when you when you first wake up, your awareness level is not the same as after lunch in the afternoon, or if you didn't sleep the night before, or if you had a difficult uh, personal situation. Uh, so th- this this kind of variability is even is even harder to to uh, let's say to have design solutions for so that's why we design we have solutions for the environment or the products or the tools that we use and all the while taking into consideration or the variability that we cannot touch because we we can't tell uh, for example pilots or maintenance technicians well you cannot uh, have a divorce because if not you're not going to be effective or efficient at your work so we have to take into consideration that as i said the gold standard uh, operator does not exist and um and we cannot be 100% error free to err is human so we really need to take into consideration that that aspects of humans when when we design things and when we uh, when we want things to not go bad in a safety critical situation because expertise or not at some point uh, we have some sort of fallibility Everyone has a role to play in aviation safety. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're you are working very hard to improve the instructions for the maintainers to make things more clear, to make things to make actually the not only more clear but more effective. In other words, maybe it's better just to go ahead and remove the cowling before doing some maintenance action some maintenance action that can be done with the cowling on but eh, you know what at the end of the day it's better just to pull the cowling and do it instead of risking dropping something or what have you but it's also incumbent then upon the pilot and the maintainer their role is to say you know what you know my my child's sick i didn't sleep last night i you know it is incumbent upon us to say listen i can't do it and that is Something that in aviation, it was societally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. We've been taught that, you know, if you're really a good employee, you just you just gut it out and you just do it. COVID has been a good example. I think it should be an example to us all. You know, never in my life did I ever wake up and think, you know, I don't feel great. I'm not going to go to work. Never. If I didn't feel great, I thought, well, I'll feel better later. Uh, my father used to say you can be sick in bed or you can be sick at work but either way you're going to be sick and so i grew up on a farm and you know the cattle had to be fed they didn't care that you were sick so my point is i think a lot of people certainly americans probably people across the world our work ethic is if you're a good employee you just get it done 
But really, that's not the right way to look at working on aircraft. Safety culture is important and speaking up is important also. And this is something that the safety management system is, it's, it's a pillar of the safety management system. It's uh, awareness, uh, speaking up, uh, not, not if thinking of the, of the good of the company, of the good of the people, of safety in general, and not being afraid to be blamed for something when, right. you, when you speak up. Right. I use this often when I speak. I, I say that we understand our physical limitations, but we don't understand our cognitive limitations. Mm -hmm. If you ask someone, if you if you have an assembly and you say, listen, I'm going to give a million dollars to whomever right now can step outside and run one mile in four minutes. If you can run one mile in four minutes, you get you get a million dollars. 99.9% .9 of the people won't get out of their seats because they know they can't do that. Mm -hmm. But if you give them an exercise or a challenge, a cognitive exercise, which they're no more capable of solving. They will try. They will try because they don't understand their physical, they don't understand that their mind, their brain is a physical limitation. And the little things count. Like um, there was an, a mid-air collision in Germany, I don't remember the 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 year exactly, uh, but it's a bit complicated. But you know the TCAS system, yes. Uh, the so the traffic collision. It's a system that all aircraft have that uh, uh, alerts when there's traffic incoming and where two planes are hitting the same spot. Uh, what happened? Uh, there were, uh, as usual, there were many many contributing factors. But one of the things that was in the NTSB report was that uh, the um, the way the TCAS was recorded the intonation was not convincing enough. And the problem was that the controller had conflicting information and this and what the strategy was that if you have conflicting information from the controller and the TCAS, you always listen to the TCAS. What happened is that one plane listened to the TCAS and another plane listened to the controller. But one of the reasons was the controller was way more convincing. Sure. The controller was like, uh, climb, climb now, and really, really uh, convincing. Whereas the TCAS was like very monotonous. It was like, increase, climb. So uh, the the urgency and the voice of the of the controller was seemed more likely. Sure. So that it it made the um, it made the pilots disregard what what the TCAS was saying and so they they collided with the right. other aircraft of course it wasn't the only factor as i said but um because then they they made things the protocol different and everything but also this this design of the of the intonation of the audio alert was not uh, it did not convey the urgency of the situation and that may have um may have changed something for the decision that was taken may have changed the sure. the decision making so this is another another thing that we work on in human factors right. which is decision making it's it's a very complex uh, field but also there are lots of studies that that show that we are very very influenced by our context and and by what we know what the hypothesis that we give uh, to the, the the reasonable hypothesis that we give to any situation, right. Right. especially when it's something that we are not expecting. Right. So our, there are mental models that show that the more uh, unexpected situations, the more the, the situation is unexpected, um, the more likely you are to do something you wouldn't do right. in a normal because situation. Because you have no experience to give you a, a basis. Yeah, it's fascinating to me there's a gentleman, his name is Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's uh -huh. a fantastic book. It's a great book. book. And 
Yes, the just how words change the way we physically behave, mm-hmm. right? And how the order of the words matter. And certainly the intonation and the... It struck me when you're first talking about uh, oral warnings and I believe, and I, someone's going to fact check me. And <laughs> if you are, uh, fact check me and tell me I'm incorrect. I probably am. But I believe that the first use of the oral warnings was on the B-58 Hustler bomber. In the United States, we had a bomber, the B-58 Hustler is a supersonic bomber. And they had a system on board that aircraft, and it was called Bitching Betty. And I forget all the details, but it was a female voice, and the female voice was used for the alert system, whatever the alert systems were. Uh, I'm sure it was very rudimentary. This would have been back in the late 50s, maybe early 60s. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's correct because I mean I don't know about which which aircraft was the first one, but I do know that um, the reason why it, they started using female voices was because it's all uh, historically from World War II when they, when we started having uh, aircraft for the military, the sound system was uh, was really was really bad, so you couldn't hear well, and they realized that using a female voice was would stand out among all the all the men talking. Sure. So uh, and it 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 sounded uh, better on the radio. We can hear it because the pitch was higher. So that's why it started out being a female voice. And then the more uh, the audio quality became became better, uh, we started using male voice in the in the cockpit. But also it depends on the on the manufacturer and the. Sure, absolutely. But it's it's so fascinating that you know we've some things in life, you know again. Assuming I'm correct, I may or may not be, but Bitching Betty was a female voice, and they they did this, you know, I, I'm sure through not a lot of science, just some common sense, common sense, <laughs> uh-huh. which and yeah, it worked. I so, know. I mean, thankfully, we do have common sense, and that's what got us to where we are. And I think that uh, common sense. Uh, mixed in with science is is the best <laughs> certainly because our the hypothesis that we take at the beginning of every of every experiment or every study uh, needs to come from somewhere like sure. common sense so that we are able to to emit certain things and verify them and maybe we're wrong maybe we're right but now we have the the methodology to be able to actually uh, say with some degree of um, certainty whether uh, what we observed is actually comparable to the to the right. population in general. Right. Yeah, we may be right, but the the statistical variation may be so insignificant that it's not so important. Exactly. I'm grateful we have people like you in our industry <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, studying this because it mm-hmm. is extremely important. And if we're going to, as an industry, bring our accident rate down, certainly engineering of the aircraft is important, no question. But statistically, it's the human element that is more problematic mm-hmm. and more difficult because the variability is so high. Mm-hmm. And I think how it was that uh, a long time ago when uh, air- airplanes weren't uh, very safe yet, we didn't have the technology we have today, uh, most of the accidents were due to engineering, to mm-hmm. some sort of uh, sure. technical event that happened in the aircraft. And now s- planes are safer and safer. And the accidents were in the statistic is really high where the we we have uh, we don't have a lot of accidents, so that's great. But when we do, eighty percent of the time it's due to human error. 
And so this is uh, really jarring sometimes to think about. So we, we still can't, beca- because it's more variable, because the machine will not make a mistake. Machine, once we, once we have the technology, once we have the, the intelligence behind it, and it will, not, it will not fail. But humans are so variable that we might fail. Uh, and so what we need to do is reduce the prob- probability of humans to fail. And so we need to study all the cultures or the different uh, situations we can find ourselves in. Right. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of experts in Airbus. The executive expert is Florence Roseau. She's called Florence Roseau. She's the one that um, work, worked a lot with the EASA. Uh, to put into to put uh, human factors in the core of certification, and then there's a a, um, a network of experts that uh, also uh, make sure that uh, things are uh, put in place, that uh, we take into account the human factors, and and not not just by saying. Okay, I know the operator can be fatigued, but rather, <laughs> rather really knowing that the operator can be fatigued, how can I make things better for the operator? And that's really something we need to change. We need to um, take into account this this different way of looking into right. things. That right. Because our successes naturally. are all tied together. Mm-hmm. We're not successful if our customer is not successful, and they're not successful if they aren't successful in serving their passengers. And mm-hmm. yeah, we're all tied together to this. Mm-hmm. Safety is, uh, yeah, it it has to be the core at everything because we all want to go home to our families, mm-hmm. and no one wants to harm anyone. Exactly, and I think also that the, what's difficult is that we're all humans. And that makes us experts on being humans. And so the difference is that um, being an expert at being a human is not the same as understanding all the all the complex ways of being a human, like the physiology, the the biology, the oh my c- cognition, Absolutely. how the brain works, um, how different right. we can be. So um, we need to we need to study that in a more scientific manner and use the common sense that we all have and put it into application. Right. Yeah. Eighty billion neurons, two hundred trillion connections in our brain. Mm-hmm. It's stunning. The complexity of the mind, the brain, is just unbelievable. It looks like we've reached our clearance limit. We're, we're running out of time. I'd like to thank uh, Natalie for sharing your time, your expertise, and your passion for safety. And while your efforts may go unnoticed by many, your speciality, your, 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 your capabilities are critical to a safer tomorrow. Thank you, Bruce, for, for interviewing me and making this available to people who are interested in, in making human factors a priority. You're fantastic. Thank you so much. I <laughs> thank appreciate you. Thank you very much. So until next time, resume on navigation. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc.